Okay, let's grab our Bibles together. And we are in the book of Acts. Uh, I am so excited uh, to bring a word to us today uh, from Acts chapter 13. It's such a blessing, as I said earlier, just to gather together. Uh, Those of you who are uh, connecting with us online, I hope you are blessed by uh, our worship and the time we spend in the word. I hope it just enriches your soul. Um, As you're finding your place in the book of Acts, let me just recap a little bit of where we've been. Uh, Last time, what we saw is that our God is a sending God. Our God is a sending God. What we see is that God sent Jesus. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 13, we saw last time that the Holy Spirit and the church collectively send out missionaries. And we're praying that God would continually raise up people within our fellowship that we as a church, along with the Holy Spirit, can send out on mission. Our God is a sending God. So Paul and Barnabas last time were sent out by the church in Antioch. In light of that, we want to be ascending church. And what we said last time, that loves all peoples, that listens to the Holy Spirit and that loses to gain. What I mean by that last expression is that we're willing to lose our best people, to send them to uh, the mission field, to send them out as church planters or pastors or missionaries or ministers to send people out. And we trust that losing in that way is gaining for the sake of the kingdom. So in our text today, in Acts 13, we follow Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. They've been sent out to spread the glory of Christ, and they've traveled uh, to this island called Cyprus. And we walked through what they experienced there last time. And now they're leaving Cyprus. They're headed north, and they're going to come to eventually to Antioch of Pisidia. We'll spend most of our time today in Paul's sermon. So uh, this morning, um, we're actually preaching a sermon about a sermon, right? So um, it's going to be an interesting uh, time together. But what we see is, first, we notice that John Mark, who's been traveling with them, who they picked up um, as they started this missionary journey, they picked up, he's been going with them, learning from them. But at the beginning of this portion, we see John Mark doesn't make this journey. Luke doesn't make much of that storyline here. We're not told why he doesn't tag along for this part of the trip, but we discover later that Paul's not really happy about it. He's very discouraged. I hope you know that people will let you down. Anybody know that? People will disappoint you. They'll let you down. Paul knew As he was going on mission that he was going to experience rejection. He knew preaching the gospel people are going to reject him. So he expected to be rejected out there. He expected rejection out there. But as a leader Paul was learning. And he did not expect defection in here. That also happens. Um, Paul had team member to defect and to bail on him. This is a tough lesson in leadership. um, And it's a reality I think we all need to get a hold of. Not everyone that starts with you will stay with you. That's hard. That's hard, isn't it? But it's just true. Not everyone who starts the journey with you will stay with you. 
We'll look at more of that later on when uh, John Mark tries to rejoin this team and Paul's not having any of it. He's like, no, you're not getting in my boat. <laughs> and there's a little bit of a, a, a discussion there. So here we pick up Paul and Barnabas. I'm going to call him Barney just for short. Paul and Barney, they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. They, they land in, uh, they arrive in Antioch and Pisidia and the Sabbath day comes. And so they go to the synagogue. And they sit and they listen to the reading of the law and the prophets. And the Jewish rulers there invite them to give a message to the people. This was Jewish tradition. Um, And Paul was a well-known scholar and teacher. He was the student of Gamaliel, one of the most renowned Pharisees and teachers of his time. So Jewish tradition of the day was if, if another teacher came into the synagogue, you would ask him, hey, do you have a you have a word for the people? You have something you want to share. And so Paul was given a platform to preach essentially in almost every church he ever visited in the New Testament. That was his missionary strategy was to come into a, a village and go to church because he knew when he got there, they were going to say, do you have a word for us? And he was going to stand up and say, Yes, his name is Jesus. And that's the message. We pick it up here. Uh, Would you stand with me? It's a long passage today, but it is full of glorious gospel truth. We pick up in uh, Acts 13. We'll start reading in verse 16 of our text today. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands. I love that. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. That's an interesting way to talk about slavery, right? During their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm, God led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David. To be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. You should underline that. That's a that's a high point. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Paul continues, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found no guilt worthy of death, 
they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this beautiful text, this beautiful passage. And this morning we point our attention, our affections, and our allegiance to this man, Jesus, in whom By faith, we can be forgiven and freed from sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ is advancing to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And Paul talks about that in Romans 1. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And then he, he goes on and on. But this is the pattern. And this is the pattern that God ordained is that the gospel would go first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And aren't you thankful? A room full of probably vast majority Gentiles. Paul is given this opportunity to preach in the synagogue. And I love that he steps up waving his arms. He wants every eye and every ear to hear what he has to say. He waves his arms. He says, brothers, listen to me. And this morning... My plea to you is much the same. What this text has to teach us today is the most important thing you'll ever hear in your life. And that's not hyperbole. So I wave my arms like a fool and I plead with you, don't be distracted this morning. Paul begins to preach. They've just read from the law and the prophets and he picks up right there and points them to Jesus. What I want to do today is ask three simple questions and walk through this text, answering those questions together. But I want you to know the pinnacle of our conversation, the pinnacle of this sermon today is in verses 38 and 39. So if you'll allow it, I'm going to read it one more time. Just those verses. Paul says, let it be known to you. Therefore, brothers. That through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. So it begs the question first. Who is Jesus? What I want to do is just walk through this passage answering three questions. Who is Jesus? What happened to him? And why does it matter? Who is Jesus? What happened to him and why does it matter? What we see in this text is that Jesus, first of all, and and. and this is the, like I said, the, the main idea. First of all, he is the one in whom we find forgiveness and freedom. Right? But I want to give you these things from the text. Jesus is the revealed Savior of promise. The revealed Savior of promise. In verse 23, after Paul's gone through a long history uh, actually, a very brief history. He covered literally thousands of years in just a few verses. And uh, he goes through all of that. And then he says, of this man, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so Paul's message is a revealing of Jesus. He's the revealed savior that God has been promising all along. Now. 
Paul just picks up where they've, where they've read, and we don't know what, what they read from, the law of the prophets. We don't know exactly what they read, but Paul picks up right there and walks them to King David. And from King David, he says, now, it's from David's offspring that God has brought to us Jesus. But I want to tell you a little bit more about what is the promise being fulfilled? And maybe you want to write these verses down as we talk through them. God has been promising a savior from the moment that sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve listened to the words of a serpent, the temptation and the lies of a serpent to eat the fruit that had been forbidden and they ate of that fruit. Right after that, God came in and cursed man, woman and serpent. And in Genesis chapter three, when God is cursing the serpent, he says to the serpent. This woman's offspring and your offspring will be at odds with each other the rest of your lives. How many of you hate snakes? I hate snakes, but that's not what this is talking about. Because the next phrase, Genesis 3.15, is the very first messianic prophecy. It's the prophecy of the coming Savior. And here's what it says. Of her offspring, of woman's offspring, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And the prophecy from Genesis 3 is saying, there's one coming and he's going to kill this deceptive certain serpent Satan once and for all, but he's only going to kill him through suffering. He will be pitied and he will suffer. It will be through suffering that he will save. And in Genesis 3.15, that's the first promise of God to bring about a savior. In Genesis 12 with Abraham, he says, get up out of your country and go to a land that I will show you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have more children than the stars of the sky. And then he says to him in Genesis 12, three, by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a promise about our savior. The promise of a savior is now given an earthly father and lineage. How many grew up singing father Abraham had many sons, right? The reason that song Matters is because Christ came through the line of Abraham. And God promised it in Genesis 12. In Genesis 49, verse 10, we have more specifics given to the promise of God. There's a verse here that says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And so we learn it's not just through Father Abraham, but it's through the house of Judah that this Messiah, this Savior is coming. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, King David is at the end of his life. And as he's about to die, God says to him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And here's the promise. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And what we discover is now that it's not just Father Abraham, the house of Judah, but it's of the line of David. And this Savior is going to sit on the king, sit on the throne as king, sit on David's throne as king forever. So now we're getting more and more clarity as the time goes on as to who this revealed Savior is going to be. And one more, there's so many of these promises I could give you, but I just want to give you one more. How will this king come to save? And Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 says it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this Savior, this promised Savior, doesn't come just to to conquer in a huge way. He comes to suffer and die on your behalf. Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, Christ has come, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's the, the lamb. He's not just the lion of Judah. He's the lamb that was slain. This is the revealed Savior of promise. This is who Jesus is. Secondly, Jesus is the resurrected Lord. So he didn't just come to die. He came to raise from the dead. Verses 30 and 32 in Acts 13. That's what Paul says. He says, but God raised him from the dead. And then he says, we bring you good news that God's promise to the fathers he has fulfilled by raising Jesus. The resurrection of Christ is the pinnacle of Christianity. Paul says, without the resurrection, we're of all men most to be pitied. We put all our faith in a dead man. But because Christ is raised, he is our savior. He's the resurrected Lord. Jesus is the rejected son. As we read through this text, what we see is a a warning. Uh, Paul gives this warning in verses 40, 41. He says, quoting from Habakkuk, beware, therefore, and he gives the quote, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe. And what we find is that Jesus is the rejected son. I don't know if you remember the parable of the man who owned the vineyard and he hired tenants to work in his vineyard. Jesus told this story in Matthew 21 and man hired tenants to work the vineyard and the time came for the fruit to be harvested. So he sent his servants to go get some fruit and bring it back to him. The servants got there and the tenants, they beat them and threw them out, rejected them. And the master, the owner of the vineyard was like, what in the world? He sent more servants and they, they beat them and killed some of them. And so the owner of the vineyard said, I don't, I'll send my son. They'll respect and honor him. And when the son came to the vineyard, the tenants saw the son and said, that's the heir. If we kill him, all this will be ours. And they killed the son of the owner. And Jesus looked the Pharisees in the face and he said, you are these wicked tenants. God has sent you his prophets, his kings, his judges. You've rejected, beaten, and killed them all. And now he sent me. Will you reject me, Jesus says to the Pharisees. 
He says, I'm the cornerstone. And the truth is, he was the rejected son. They did reject him. Jesus is not just the rejected son, but he is the reigning king. It was through his rejection, through his suffering, through his death, that he was going to rise victorious over all of that. And he reigns as king, but not just king of Israel, king to the ends of the earth. Look at what happens. This story of rejection and reigning actually plays out right in front of our faces in the in the story here. Paul warns, he says, don't let it be true of you that you reject him. And they do. The Jewish rulers in the synagogue get jealous and they, they run them off. So what does Paul do? Paul and Barnabas turn and begin to preach to the Gentiles. Say that God has called them to be a light to the Gentiles. I love this. That you may bring the salvation to the ends of the earth. And we see that this kingdom, this throne is not just the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. No, he's the king of the whole world. And this gospel is spreading. It reminds me of the parable Jesus told in Luke 14 of the great banquet. If you remember, there's this uh, master throwing a great party. And he sent out all the invitations to tell him the date and the time. Hey, this is, we're going to have a huge banquet. It's going to be amazing. Well, the day of the banquet arrives. And those who receive the invitations have all their excuses. Well, I, I just bought some oxen. I kind of need to go check them out. Yeah, I actually just bought land. And I really need to kind of go take care of my land. One guy's like, I just got married. <laughs> and the master is angered that nobody's coming to this party. So he, he tells his servant, I want you to go out and I want you to bring in the lame and the poor and the crippled. Bring them to my table. And the servant says, we, we've already done that, Lord. It's, we've already done it. There's still more room. And then the master says, well, then I want you to go out into the highways and the byways, the hedges. I want you to bring in the people who are far off. This story is being fulfilled in Acts 13 as the gospel is rejected by those who were insiders to choose and is being embraced now by those who were far off. They're being welcomed to the banquet table of the Lord. Jesus, who is Jesus? He's the revealed Savior. He's the resurrected Lord, the rejected Son, and the reigning King over all the earth. So what happened to him? Well, quickly, let's just walk through what Paul outlines. He tells the gospel story. Look with me, if you will, in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And then he goes through a list, and I want to walk through these quickly. What happened to Jesus? Well, First, Paul tells us he was not guilty. Verse 27. Oh, verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt. This is, a, this is a massive point about Jesus. He was sinless. There's a lot we could say here, but just say this. In Luke's gospel, it's remarkable 
how unjust Jesus' death was. Four different times he's declared innocent. Pilate declares him innocent. Herod declares him innocent. Two other times he's declared innocent and still executed. Jesus was not guilty. Secondly, he was executed is what Paul says. His death, the death of Christ was the plan of God. I hope you know that. The death of Jesus was the plan of God. You can read about that in Isaiah 53. This was the plan to crush his own son. It didn't catch him by surprise. Jesus said in John 10, no man takes my life. I lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I am going. I have come to seek and to save the lost. And how does he do it? He does it through his own death. The beautiful thing about this text is Paul actually tells us that those who killed him didn't even realize they were fulfilling the prophecies. It's remarkable. He says they didn't recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, even though they read them every Sabbath. But they fulfilled them by condemning him. God can work out his sovereign plan even through our ignorance. And he did through the death of his own son. Thirdly, so he was not guilty. He was executed. He was buried. And there's not a lot of detail here in this text because they were in a hurry to get Jesus off the cross. They had to get him down off that tree and lay him in a tomb in a hurry. Do you know why? He was killed on a Friday afternoon. And the moment Jesus breathed his last, the sky went black. Now, they didn't wear Apple watches like you and I do today, right? So they just went by the light of the day and and the sun and and the dark constituted day and night. And so when on Friday night, the sky went black, you know what that meant? It meant the Sabbath day was beginning. Here's the irony. Those who think they are justly killing Jesus are immediately condemned by their own law. Killing a man on a Saturday. And God, ironically, made those at the foot of the cross, innocent man on the tree, those who had just nailed him there, guilty. So they ripped him as quick as they could off that cross. Remember, they jabbed him to make sure he was dead, and then they ripped him off the cross. They took him to a borrowed tomb and just laid him in there. This was something they did fast, just because they didn't want to be guilty of it dead man on Sabbath day. This is why the ladies had to come on Sunday to prepare his body. They were going to exhume him and prep his body because there was no time. He was buried. But all that's okay because he wasn't going to be there long. Fourth, God raised Jesus from the dead. As I said earlier, the resurrection of Christ is the pinnacle of Christianity. We love the cross But the cross would only be a symbol of death if it weren't for the empty tomb. It's there that the good news of Jesus is anchored in a hope that will not disappoint. So he rose from the dead. And then lastly, to validate that, he appeared alive. He appeared alive to many. Paul actually says we are now. 
his witnesses. He's claiming to be one of these witnesses to whom Jesus appeared alive. We are his witnesses. This is a a validation of his message. It's very convincing. So this is what happened to Jesus. And now the, the real important question is this. Why does it matter? Here's why it matters. If you give me 10 more minutes. It matters because sin is damning. Verse 40, Paul says, beware. Beware, lest it come about that you perish. That's the warning that Paul gives. What he's saying is that sin separates you from God. And in our sin, we are condemned to hell. Ultimately, hell is separation from Almighty God, but it is suffering eternally. Now, when we think about sin, when our world responds to sin, when I say sin is damning, the the default response of the flesh is really two things. We deny or we dispute. Let me elaborate. We deny our guilt. It's like uh, it's like getting pulled over by a police officer and the officer comes to the car and says, sir, I, I caught you going 73 and a 55. And we look at him, we go, no, no, I wasn't doing that. And he's like, I mean, the, the, the radar gun says seven, three. That sign says five, five, like seventy three fifty five. No, no, wasn't doing that. So we play this denial game where we try to just back our way out and claim our innocence. We try to claim innocence. We deny our sin as if Almighty God doesn't already know. Or what's popular today is we dispute whether or not something actually is sin. If you don't like God's rules, just change them. He condemns it, but you kind of like it. I know that's how you read the word, but like there's a lot of interpretations. I'm just, I'm just going to, I mean, if we turn it like this, it kind of doesn't say that. We try to twist the word of God to dispute. What we're, what we're arguing for is innocent. I'm innocent because I didn't do that. Or I'm innocent because that's not really that bad. I mean, what I'm doing doesn't really hurt anybody but me, right? I mean, who who made up these silly rules anyway? Don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. In Romans 3, verse 19, there's a really scary picture. It's a picture of judgment. And it just says that God will shut the mouths. And all will be held accountable to Almighty God. Can you just imagine people standing before God saying, well, God, I didn't really do that. Or it's, it's not really that bad. And God just goes, 
you're held to my standard. We are accountable to Almighty God. We should hear Paul's words as a warning. And I want you to know, church, a warning is loving. Even if it sounds harsh. When I stand at the front door and I open the door and I yell at my children, get out of the road. That's loving. Right? It may sound really mean. But it's because I don't want pancakes for children. I want my babies to live. It's loving. Let me tell you a quick story. There's a man traveling down uh, the road. He's driving and he gets like this heavy fog. The weather conditions are terrible. He can hardly see it. So he's just trapping with the taillights in front of him. He's just following along, trying to, trying to follow along. He's keeping a safe distance in case they have to hit their brakes. But he's trailing these taillights. And all of a sudden the taillights just... Disappeared. So he hits the brakes, pumps the brakes, he says, What in the world? He stops, gets out of his car, and he runs up to find out there was a bridge, but it had collapsed. And that car had plummeted over the edge of that bridge 60 feet, and everyone inside was dead. He's panicking, he's worried, he's like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. He turned around to go back to his car and sees headlights coming. He's like, oh no. Oh no. He starts waving his arms. Stop! Stop! And fly right by over the edge. He goes to the edge, looks over, gone. Turns back around, more headlights coming. Stop, stop, stop. He's trying to stop the traffic. Right over the edge. Off in the distance, he sees a charter bus full of people. Headlights careening down the road. He takes off his jacket, gets out in front of the bus. He's jumping up and down. He's flailing around like a fool, screaming, hollering, stop, stop, stop. The bus driver stops. He comes to a screeching halt. He gets off the bus. He's cursing at him. Why would you get, what are you doing, you idiot? Get out of the road. The driver who stopped him said, you've got to see this. And they together go look over the cliff and see just the clutter of cars and the death that's below. And the man who drove the bus looked at him and was like, oh my gosh, thank you for warning me. Sin is damning. You need to hear this. Stop! Stop it! It will kill you. In this passage, Paul looks at those who drove right past his waving arms. And he says, in thrusting God's word aside, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Second reason this matters is that good is not good enough. What Paul says is that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. Now, listen from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What Paul is saying is that you think you're good. 
Because you're better than him. And Paul says, good is not good enough. I know you think you're good. But the truth is, you're not a good person. No one is except Jesus. Many people, if I ask people that uh, question, the, the, the knock on the door type evangelism question, I say, if you were to die tonight, I don't know where everybody dies tonight, but people die. If, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and He were to say, why should I let you in? And they say, well, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. Paul would say, you need to be set free. That whole system of good will never work. What you need is a Savior. Good is not good enough. And thirdly, Jesus is God's only plan to save. Verse 38, Paul says, it's through this man, through this man. There is no other way. A lot of people want to say, well, you know, there's lots of religions, lots of ways to God. You know, he's up there. If I go this way, great. If you go that way, great. No. Paul says it's through this man. It's only through Jesus. You get a great picture of that in the Old Testament. God said, my wrath is coming. I'm going to bring a flood like you've never seen. Noah built a boat. Noah built a huge ark. How many arks were there? One. The judgment of God is coming. God has provided a way of escape. But there's only one way. And his name is Jesus. And just like only those who got on the boat, only those who were in the ark were saved. In the same way, only those who are in Christ will be saved. Jesus is God's only plan to save. There is no other way in Christ You have everything to gain. Forgiveness of sin and acceptance with God. And with Christ, you have everything to lose. In Christ, you can be forgiven. Your sin debt erased. A debt you would never be able to pay wiped clean. And your sin separated from you as far as the east is from the west. God will never recall it to his memory again. Isn't that beautiful? That's forgiveness with God. That's what it means to be forgiven. But it's not just forgiveness. It's freedom. You see, in Christ, we're not just brought back from sinner to the neutral zone. How many of you in your Bibles, the word freedom actually uses the word justified? Anybody? Anybody's Bible? The NIV uses justified. Okay, right. That's a good word here. Here's what we're talking about. We go from being sinners, not just back to neutral. But in Christ, we are declared righteous in Jesus. This is the glorious gospel of salvation in Jesus, is that we are no longer just Neutral, we are declared righteous and empowered to live free in worship of our God. So what will you do with this news? What will you do with this? This is huge. It has the power to change your life forever. And there's two options that 
they took in this text. Some rejected. Some received. Some responded with jealousy. Some responded with joy. The gospel is the power of God to save. I want to ask you, have you looked to Jesus for salvation from your sin? He's the only way. And if you have, are you standing in the road shouting warnings of love? Look to Christ. Look to Christ.